Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art, and show the world your heart, express yourself to art. And welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. This is our weekly program covering arts and arts events in Valparaiso and throughout Northwest Indiana. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art in the Air. Our theme music you heard is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum, regional art patron Mary LeVan, and our landlord, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. If you'd like to find out more about leasing space in this historic building, please give Walt a call, 219-462-5821. I'd like to thank them for their generous support. Thanks to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President, Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and is part of the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. That's artontheairwvlp at gmail.com. Our program, along with all of our programs, are streaming live at wvlp.org. Art on the Air is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Our shows are carried by Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., and you can hear them at lakeshorepublicradio.org. Our entire show archive can be heard at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. And make sure to like us on our Facebook page, Art on the Air, WVLP. Art on the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art on the Air and, of course, the WVLP station, we'd be happy to become part of the WVLP family anytime. Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com slash AOTA. You can find out support information there or at wvlp.org slash support. So don't just be a WVLP and Art on the Air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so so we continue to bring you great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air and the whole WVLP family. Join the WVLP family today. And an Art on the Air program note. Due to the COVID-19 WVLP shutdown doing in-studio shows on March 26th. However, Art on the Air has continued to provide great content by first featuring a couple of Encore episodes, and then in April, adding telephone interview capability using our home studio. We are now pre-recording all new shows, so we are able to schedule guests at their convenience, and we plan on doing pre-recorded shows in the future, even after COVID-19 issue has passed. In April, we featured three hour-long COVID-19 specials about the impact of the pandemic on artists. And you can still hear that on our website at breck.com stroke AOTA. We've also reformatted Art in the Air, replacing the reading of a list of arts events with a six-minute spotlight segment featuring local art and music events that is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio three times on Wednesdays. 
Our long-form interview format now usually features two guests and has been expanded to include national and international guests. We added Zoom interview capability in July 2020, greatly improving our guest audio. And we may even do Zoom video as an option in the future. Thank you for your continued support of Art on the Air. And now for this Art on the Air Spotlight, we uh, have a special information about the Indiana Sea Studios, a brand new thing. Ed Shelton is uh, coming on, uh, artist, uh, also educator, and Kun Hong, who's going to actually take up. There's a special plein air event that they're going to discuss. Welcome to Art on the Air Spotlight. Aloha. Greetings. So, Edwin, tell us a little bit about what's going on. This is on September 25th, 26th, and 27th, uh, a special thing called Plein Air Painters, and where it is and how it's going to work at Angela House. Oh, yes. Um, well, it's uh, organized by uh, Kai, and so it's going to be this wonderful um, kind of art hostel uh, that will be uh, provided at the um, Angela House which is the former convent on 10th Street, uh, right beside St. Mary's uh, Church. So um, it should be, um, it'll include uh, breakfast and there'll be vegan options. There'll be an evening of music. So it'll be a really great opportunity for not only um, having a painting op uh, opportunity, but also just for plein air painters to get together and have a really great social uh, uh, activity at this particular time. But I think it, given, it, I mean, it, the experiences would be really great uh, just to be in that building because it was designed as a convent. So the downstairs has a large uh, communal dining room. There's a nice living room. And then the, the uh, bedrooms are above and the building is probably um, close to a century old, at least. So it's got a lot of character. So there'd be, there would be plenty to paint just on the grounds. And did I read that it's called the first brush of fall? I also read that like there's two night room pricing, double occupancy at $150 and single occupancy at $100. So it's a way for them to get together and uh, actually these plein air painters to paint. And I guess this is also being uh, involved with the Dunes Foundation, which actually they do that. Uh, Jeff Baumgartner from the uh, there, and he's also involved with that. And you can contact him through the dunesartsfoundation.org. So, uh, but you can register at the Angela House, and then you guys can do painting. You'll have eating, uh, things like that. Well, let's move on to uh, uh, Kun uh, Can you tell us you're going to participate in this? So tell us a little bit about uh, your what you're going to be involved with doing that. Well, I live in Chicago downtown, and I have to commute whenever I would like to visit this uh, Indiana C Studios, but since I have an option of the uh, Angela House, I can stay overnight and then have a fellowship with other uh, colleague artists during the evening hours, and then I can paint all day uh, if my energy continues. <laughs> Otherwise, I can paint in the morning and then relax in the afternoon. So do you see it, um, and this is a question to both of you, so when you go out generally as plein air painters, you're painting sort of the same landscape. This time, is everybody going to be able to go? I mean, is it going to be set up where they can go where they would like to go paint, or are you going to kind of 
distance as a group and focus on the same part of the the convent? Well, plenty of painting, even if you go to see one specific spot, each artist may have a different angles you'd like to choose. So you sure. could have enough social distancing between each artist and then spread and take uh, different spots and a different angle to tackle the painting. So it'll be very interesting that from the one object you could produce 10 different uh, art objects. And then if you go to the 10 different places, then you're going to be multiplied 100 different art. That's true. That's true. They also said that masks and social distancing will be required and no pets or children during um, these three days. That's what I understand. Is that how people can find out about it? Uh, let me give you uh, Kai's uh, phone number because she can give you more detailed information. It's Kai, K-E-I, at 219-210-1837. Or if she's not available, uh, Jane uh, Cowley uh, can be reached at 219-229-9030. So, can, can, so a website again as to where they can find out the most information? It's at the dunesartsfoundation.org. And, um, yeah, that's uh, Jeff Baumgardner. Uh, you can contact uh, uh, Kai Kinsavanoff, and I'll have that on our, our uh, website. And I think Jeff, Jeff has also left a number, 219-879-7509. That's correct. So if you're interested in being a plein air painter uh, and staying overnight in the beautiful Angela House uh, in Michigan City, please contact them. We'd like to thank uh, Edwin and Kuhn for being on Art on the Air Spotlight. Thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. And we'd like to welcome to Art on the Air, Sadie Bridger. She's an artist that uh, has been uh, journeying through things. She likes to explore how uh, disparities between different types of groups uh, make define her art, and we'd like to welcome her to Art on the Air. Welcome, Sadie. Oh, it's, it's great to be here, Larry. Great aloha. to be here. Oh, aloha to you, Esther. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me to come along to share my story and, and about what I'm doing at this point in time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Oh, well, so, so let's much. start off, Sadie. Just tell us a little about your journey, like where you from, where how you got from where you were, like to where you are now. Some of your personal journey about where you grew up uh, and everything like that. Your origin story. <laughs> yeah, I would love to share my origin story. And you know what's so incredible about my origin story is that right now I'm in the, uh, I'm in lockdown in New York City and I just got back from North Carolina. So it really gave me the opportunity to really look at my origins, uh, at a very close, in a very close view. Um, well, let's start at the beginning. I was uh, born in 1952 in the rural south in a small southern town called Blainboro, North Carolina, that is inland, and it's surrounded by the Big Swamp, and uh, the Cape Fear River is, is nearby. And the thing that I think is very different about my background than a lot of people is that my parents came from 
very socioeconomically different backgrounds. My mother was a mill, her family was a mill worker, and my father's family owned the mill. So in my life, I, I saw daily the differences between the haves and haves not. And it would not have been unusual for me to go over to my mother's mother's house and see a live animal killed, like having a chicken have its neck wrung off, and then going home to my father's uh, mother's house, which is where we lived, and sitting at a table with china and silver. So um, there were kind of uh, a Romeo and Juliet story. And the thing that I thought that was so interesting, even though that there were huge disparities in their background, somehow they were able to get along, I, I guess, because they loved each other. And um, so the whole idea of differences um, they, they, they were at my very early beginning. Um, let me just give you a, a few, uh, well, at least one story about my background with, um, with art. Please do. Um, as one of my earliest memories, and before I go into the story, I, I have to say that probably my background as an artist is certainly not like a lot of artists' background. Uh, because I did not have a lot of art in the house. So, but I have a vivid remember, remembrance of the first time I did my drawing as a very young girl. I can remember taking a crayon on the, uh, concrete, uh, sidewalk in front of our house and just feeling like that I was doing what I was meant to do as a young girl. And I drew all the way from my house to in front of the First Baptist Church. And um, I I felt like that I had felt what it is that I wanted to do and what I love to do. But I was the preacher next door went and talked to my mother, and I was reprimanded for, um, for doing this, and I was given a toothbrush to actually... Uh, take my drawing off the sidewalk. And I can remember taking that, trying to get my drawing off the sidewalk, and it would go deeper into the concrete. So I, I, uh, no one wanted me to be an artist. And it was um, in the South, there were things that women were supposed to do and things that women weren't, weren't supposed to do. And drawing and to the church was not one of them. Um, another story that really comes to mind about the boundaries that I saw in the house, uh, in the South, excuse me. Um, another story that really comes to my mind about the boundaries in the South was when I was a young girl and I was riding in the back of a car and I can remember that my feet were barely touching the floor. And we rode by this black church and cars were out there all day long. And I remember wanting to go inside of this church to experience what they were experiencing. And I really, I, I really did not understand why 
we could not go in each other's worlds and why I was taught that do unto others as you would have them do unto me, why it is we didn't worship together. And um, these things, it, it really bothered me. It really haunted me why, why there wasn't some way that we were connected. But I, I really tried really hard to fit in as a, as a young woman, and I did all the things that were expected of me and the convention that I lived in. I mean, I was, I went to high school and I was a, my freshman president and I was a leading cheerleader. And on the asides that I would do is I, I did take art class. I had this wonderful aunt who was irreverent and she you have to love those ants. I had one too. <laughs> she, she was so irreverent. And she showed me that there was a different way to be as a woman and that I could do art and that it could be a part of my life. But when I was growing up, I really did it as an aside. And I re even remember when I would read, like I read The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone, The Life of Michelangelo. I can re remember it being a very solitary act. It's not something that I would share with other artists. It was something that I marveled at as how he studied the body, and I, I just, I was very fascinated. So by Sadie, it. so Sadie, in those first art classes in school, what type of art were they doing? What were you, what were well, you creating? Well, you have to remember, it was in the late fifties and the sixties. It was, it was painting and drawing. I mean, wasn't photography. It, it wasn't any of the direction that I went in now. So, um, and, and it was. You know, when you're an artist and you really get into a, a project that you're really excited about, how you just dive into it. it. It was, when I was in high school, it was much more of an aside because I really felt like that that wasn't part of the convention that I was supposed to fit into, you know? And um, it took a while for me to get there, but I did get there. So, <laughs> big way. Uh, yeah. So there were very clear boundaries of what was expected of you and what wasn't expected of you. So, do you have any questions? Yes, about my, one childhood? thing. <laughs> I see you have uh, you had theater in some of your backgrounds. So tell us a little about uh, how theater was in your background. Well, I loved I loved theater. I um, I would just I was involved with uh, just plays that they would produce in the school and. Um, Maybe that does that, that theater has to do with the interaction of me liking the interaction between people. Actually, I've never really thought about that until right You're now, Larry. Yeah, so yeah. much of it is performance, you know? I your know. double take, your double take was a performance. Your, um, the releases, it's a performance. So, wow. Yeah, I think. Well, I've, I've never really connected the two. And that's what's been so great about this is this has uh, forced me to look at my background to see exactly where I'm plugging in and how I got to where I got. But yes, I was very involved and I thought it would be great to be an actress, but um, I didn't end up taking that path. So, uh, but maybe I will next in the next five years. It's never too late you know, to get on stage. There's a lot of people that came to theater <laughs> yeah. late. 
so I, I tried really hard when I was in high school and in, and in college uh, to fit in. So I, I went to um, college and I got a degree and a bachelor's of science in elementary education. And um, I was a remedial reading teacher and I went back to Duke University and uh, got certified to teach children that were dyslexic. So um, I did that for a very long time and um, I started to explore photography just to relax. In the evenings after uh, I taught, I would I took classes at NC State University. I, I took black and white photography and um, I, I fell in love with photography and I was very interested in documentary photography. I was interested in Mary Ellen Mark and I decided that I wanted to be a photographer and, uh, but I, but I stuck I tried really hard to stick with the convention, but I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. So I applied to a, um, a community college and I studied photography. I did not get a lot of support from my family. I was married at the time. My husband didn't support me. So, um, uh, once I got my degree, I, got a job at the North Carolina Museum of Art and uh, I was in their photography uh, program. I photographed the collection at the museum. So this this is when my artistic nature asserted itself. It's just like I had been uh, denying that I had this creative streak and it just bubbled up. And um, so I... I started working um, on on projects that really interested me, and I was interested in the relationships between man and nature. And I um, hooked up with a group of scientists from the Smithsonian, and I would follow them on bird banding expeditions. I was very interested in how they related to nature, that yin-yang of how they can find information but be protective of the birds. So I did that, and it was a lovely experience. I did that for three years, and I had an exhibition. And on the side also, I went back to my roots, and I uh, did a series of images that were uh, southern portraits and they were the relationship between blacks and whites in the South. And it showed that even though that we look different, that there are a lot of things that are that we are alike, that we all want to be happy, we all want to have a good life, we all want to have a spiritual practice. There are certain things that we do that, that makes our life enjoyable and that we're not really as different as we think we are. So um, I, I decided that what I would do is that I would try to further my education. And I took this body of work and I applied to Rochester Institute of Technology. And I got in 
to Rochester, which was fantastic. It was a fantastic way to uh, think of how there's so many different ways to use photography. So I was very lucky I got into that program, and I, with a bachelor's of science and a background in teaching, so I'm, my work got me in, and the thing that was really kind of interesting at the time is that when I got there, um, my teachers thought that I was black, you know, and I was, uh, what had happened is that the, um, there was a secretary who was head of the um, administration school, and it was a black woman, and I walked in one day asking about money for a scholarship, and I told her my name. I was saying, would you think I could apply for this scholarship? And I said, my name's Sadie Bridger, and she said, yeah, she said, my God, you're white. I thought you were a black woman, and I said, no. <laughs> and um, so um, this work was was really diff difficult as a white woman because in academia, um, uh, a lot of the academics thought that, who are you as a white person to do work like this? And what was what I found so interesting was that that whites from the community that I grew up in and from North Carolina. I would get the question, why is a nice white girl like you taking photographs like this? So the message that I got was that I was not supposed to be in that world. So, and it just never felt right to me. It didn't feel right to me as a little girl, and it didn't feel right to me as an adult. But when that happened, I started to also uh, do other type of uh, work that showed the disparity and differences between people. Because it, it's not only between black and white, it's also between male and female. So I did this body of work called Inside the Cook Room, which is about the gender roles of women and how they play out into the home. So... Um, that was that was a way that I took this this work a little further, and that was my MFA thesis. So what I did is I photographed the food that we put on the table, and I put I put the images on transparencies with candles behind it, where that you could see that the food is consumed like it would be consumed as if you're uh, eating it, or it could be consumed in fire. So, And you're uh, consumed making it, too. So it's really... Uh, totally, totally. I, I did a dirt tablecloth that had four wishbones on it. It was about the, uh, the disparity of... Well, it's about how we, uh, we think material things will make us happy and actually these material things just put us in despair so um a lot of the work was about that discrepancies and all the also the the discrepancies uh the differences between male and females i even burned 360 well actually i didn't make 365 i think i made 180 loads of bread you made them I, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I burned them, and there were like stacks of wood that I put against the wall. So um, I did want to say that my husband, uh, I, I remarried, and uh, my husband stayed with me the entire time through uh, RIT while I was doing this work, which was uh, it was very great, and it was a great support to me. So um, I finished. It took me four years to finish this degree. It was a long time, and I did tons of exploration. I studied sculpture. I, I did things that I never thought that I would do before. I, I did art welding. Uh, and I got pregnant at the end of my four years, just as I was uh, getting ready to do my orals. And um, I was eight months pregnant when I was studying for my orals. And I think I it was like three weeks later after I did my orals, I had a child. So that was a, that was really it, that was an amazing time for me, and um, that really changed my life in a big way. Having a kid, it was uh, being a mother. I learned so much. So yeah, and he's delightful. <laughs> yeah, he's a wonderful. He's wonderful. It's Isaac. So when when I um, when I uh, had my child. Um, I I also had uh, fought this um, terrible disease called endometriosis, and it reared its ugly head right after I had my uh, child. And I started um, working, uh, doing meditation, uh, like meditation classes. Uh, to help me just get through the tough time of the daily pain. But I, I did continue my work, and I, that's when I started uh, doing my releases work, where that I would start depending on others for completion. Because, because as an artist, you, you, it's, not way, it's not always about you. And when you think about the differences between yourself and others, you're always thinking about you, but in, in, in real life, to really get along, you have to think about it from the other side of uh, another person. So I thought about the releases, and uh, I did uh, my first releases piece with a, another female artist who had a young child, and we decided to do a piece where that we would... Um, we would ask the community to come in and draw or write whatever was on their mind or what they needed to release and to do it as a community where they, they were like a social organism and that their addition was as important as the artist. So you would ha have to totally depend on them for the completion of the work. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. So, uh, as a mother, I, I started working, thinking more about the community, which I think is a really great thing. And then five years later after that, 9-11 uh, came around, and there was, a fifth, there was the fifth anniversary which was in 2006, 
And uh, at that time, I had moved into Manhattan, and I called Connie up and I said, well, let's, let's do the piece here in Manhattan. Let's do it for the remembrance of all the people that died in 9-11 and all the, the remembrances of their life and what they went through. So on the stoop of where I live, we did a releases piece for the community here in New York City, and uh, we did it on the weekend of the fifth anniversary. So um, that was really a moving, it was a moving time. So, so describe, describe what happened in front of your, in front of your place. So. Oh, thank you. It, yeah. <laughs> Slow me down if I'm, if, yeah. So what we did uh, in front of the house, we had a table and on the table, we had um, recycled paper that could be used with, and we provided pencils and flowers as the remembrance of the people that had died during 9-11. And we asked for the people that if they had any remembrance or anything that they wanted to talk about, that what happened to them on the day of 9-11, for them to write whatever was either bothering them or whatever they wanted to share with the community. And we had this clothesline that went across the front of the, uh, the stoop. And so everyone that would um, come in and do a piece, they would then place it on the line for the weekend. It was for the whole entire weekend of the uh, fifth anniversary of 9-11. And on, uh, and on that morning, all the papers from the World Trade Center, for me personally, had blown across the East River, had blown across the East River into my Brooklyn neighborhood. And that morning I had picked up the papers and I had stuffed them in a bag. And when I, when I picked up the papers off the front of my walk, I had no idea that the towers had been hit. There were just papers dropping from the sky. And um, I was on my way to a doctor's appointment for my endo, and I picked them up, and I went in to uh, Manhattan. And when I got up off the train and I went up to uh, Broadway Lafayette and I looked down the street, I saw the second tower tumble down. So I... I, another of my piece, I took those pieces and I made books that would, would remember that day. Um, there, I, I don't think there's anything that an artist can do to actually, uh, talk about what it was like because everything pales to it, but to actually have a part of the history and that, that a human hand had actually cut the paper. And so I put it into a book and I did drawings for the remembrances of those, those times. So, um, And it's an extraordinarily moving piece. I mean, you yeah. just, it's kind of like I felt the same way, um, going to Pearl Harbor. You know, you're just overwhelmed with emotion, just being, viewing it, you know? Yeah, there were, um, there were three books. It, it was it, it was kind of like the climax that I went through. That it starts with with it just 
you beginning to understand what is happening. And as the books progressed, they became darker. And um, so I, I did them as a progression. And and now when I think if I when I think back on extending that work, I'm thinking, well, I probably needed to include the blue sky that day because the sky that day was incredibly. It was so. It was the most beautiful day, and um, it was a horrible. It was a horrible time in New York City. I, I don't. It was. It it made you speechless. You know when you tried when you would end up at the uh, hospitals to help people and no one was showing up. I I don't know what else to say, except that it's a big eye opener and a big life lesson, and it changed America to what it is today and to all the things that are happening. So I've got yeah, some tech. I got a technical question. What type of equipment do you use in your photography? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, that is a, that's a really good question. Well, I'll be honest with you. I love the traditional photography. I love film and, um, I had a Nikon F2AS and an FE, and uh, I also uh, I worked with a Hasselblad, a two and a quarter by two and a quarter. And when I was working at the museum, and actually with some of my photography that I did at RIT, I would work with a four by five. So I was very versed in all three formats. And 35 millimeter, two and a quarter, four by five. And then the digital world came along, <laughs> Larry, and I felt lost. I, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I'm still trying to learn, you know, but I, I did, I, I've been trying, I've been trying really hard. I've, uh, I got a cannon. Good for uh, you. I'm a cannon shooter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, well, maybe I'll call you if I'm having trouble. Well, there's a joke so on my there's a joke among cannon shooters that friends don't let friends shoot with a Nikon. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I didn't even know that. I didn't even get that far. So, uh, but yeah, but I I did get a Canon, and I'm still learning. Uh, but I I always felt like I did um, that I understood film more than I did digital. But what I'm finding now, uh, which is really interesting to me, is that. I've started doing work with my iPhone because the iPhone, mm -hmm. if you know how to use it, can is is so handy. And if you have really good ideas, and if the ideas carry the work, then you don't have to have a uh, a photograph that covers a wall. You can it can be small enough to go in a book or. I mean, the iPhone is a very powerful tool if you know how to use it. So I'm, I'm really excited about that as I'm getting older that you can just put it in your pocket and go. What about you? Do you use the iPhone? Well, I, I'm, I'm an Android user with phones. and But the <laughs> phones are actually pretty good. I mean, they do a lot of processing. Yes, if you're going to blow it up to like 20 by 30, you might run into some problems there. But uh, So most of the time, I still I always have one of my cameras with me in the car or something like that. I have 
I have one of my 5D uh, Mark IIs with a I call a walk-around lens. So, yeah, I'm always ready to shoot with that. But, yeah, I agree with you. We have uh, Joe Russell, who's a local photographer, shoots all his things on iPhone. Very interesting work and very artsy work. So uh, that's really become a thing because it's something that everyone has, and they're not always snapshots, so you can use it right away. So I agree, I, though I do have high-end cameras also. So <laughs> Yeah, well, well. It goes back to what's behind the camera. Right. I mean, in the end, I really believe that it's uh, how you see what it is. What is it that you want to say? Um, and um, so, but sometimes I, one of the things that I loved about photography, you can have a certain idea. But it's also really inspiring just to shoot, you know. Um, so yes, as my camera's filled with like six thousand <laughs> photos <laughs> that I can't use it as a telephone anymore. <laughs> I know it's too. It's a lot, isn't it? I have thousands too, totally. Well, you know, Sadie, so, I, I used to shoot uh, my publicity pictures most of the time against green screen for my shows that I directed. And I sometimes even said to myself, that was actually sometimes the most fun part about uh, doing the shows is getting them in costumes, slapping them up there, and then going back and putting a scenery in back with the green screen. I, I know I enjoyed that uh, uh, that part. And I said, you know, let's just do the pictures and forget doing the show. <laughs> but, uh, oh, that sounds great. You know, the other thing, too, about digital is that uh, – Unlike film, I used I used to use the roll of thirty six. Is like you have a roll of thirty six in thirty five millimeter. You usually would shoot and probably get about five or six images that were good, but maybe one that was very good. But the other thing was is that you were always a little more conservative about your shooting. You know, you you compose and shot. So I want that with digital. And we were talking about this before we were on the air with the eagle shot I just took. I, you sh I shot a whole range of them because you don't have to worry about, you know, the cost of film. Every shutter click and 35 miller was about a dollar, you know, to process. Right, exactly. Now you can shoot all that one. And, you know, the old saying with photography is show the good ones, throw away the bad ones, and they think you're a great photographer. <laughs> right. So, so how did you incorporate your photography into some of your – the work that you were doing, I don't know, like a, 10 years ago? I know you started to use photography in a different way. In some of your prints, right? Weren't those right? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, this probably that's a very good question, Esther. Probably the biggest difference that I how I started to take the whole idea of photography and really push it in a big way was when I was living in Indiana. I, I. Um, we were out there for a couple of years. My husband had a venture he was trying. And I had started these photographs that I had done of myself in my studio here in New York of me handling and um, handling sticks in a magical way. And, and, and I, I, I looked at the images and I wasn't totally sure what these images were about. So in the end, I ended up taking these images and then uh, learning how to do printmaking. I actually uh, took, took the image, turned it into a transparency, made a, a, a solar plate, and then had someone help me print them on a big piece of paper 
And then from, from that, what I ended up doing is uh, coming up with a story that said, a son dreamed that his mother picked up some sticks that vibrated in space and expanded and danced in front of her eyes, whispering to her, all the happiness there is in this world arises from wishing others to be happy. And then I would ask the viewer what they thought, and there was a pencil that was hanging next to the image. So this goes back to my early work where that I am questioning what is the difference between the artist and the viewer. So the basis of this work is photography, and without the photography, it would not be impossible. But I, but I took it and I weaved a story, and then from the story that I weaved, I asked for people to respond to the work. And the piece was not complete until the last day of the, sh of the show. And, and it depended totally on others for completion. So that's taking, instead of the divisions that we feel, it's trying to way to bridge the gaps between yourself and others. So, I well, mean, and also, also, don't touch the art. Here, you're inviting <laughs> the viewer to come in and be part, really, little, literally, part of it, and leave their mark on your, on your work, on the initial work, which then transforms it into something completely. Well, it, well, it becomes more about the community. It becomes more about the social organism of of the community. It really is supposed to take the spotlight off the artist. And, and bring something else to to the piece that makes it richer and speaks to to the community that you're in. So um, it was a beautiful, powerful exhibit, and and I I left my mark on all of them. <laughs> oh, thank, well, thank you, thank you. You were very. It was great having you there. You know, I've done this show in. Um, I, I was picked, it was picked up last, a year ago at Plaxo Gallery here. And there's a curator named Barbara O'Brien who had a show called Crashing the Party. And she wanted to, this is really interesting. She wanted to show work that pushed the idea of what it meant, what, what the sculpture means. So pushing the idea of what is sculpture. So, because my background is photography, I also saw it as photography. But it's really interesting that some people see it because you're asking for others to come in to the space. The, the sculptural form of taking the pencil off the wall, having someone actually write around or draw around the piece, that the people, the viewer becomes a part of the sculpture. So it's really interesting why, how people view these different pieces that I do. And uh, they really expand my mind all the time. So You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Do you archive all that, like from the um, releases and from like the... Um Oh, what was it? The the cake, uh, double take. Do you, do you uh, archive oh, they, all that stuff or... 
Um, uh, the cake, the two cake pieces I did. Well, yeah, uh, the cake, but like, like the drawings from releases or the prints from uh, magical sticks. I mean, are all those archived or once the show is down, do they get dispersed? Well, they're always for sale, but uh, I haven't sold any of them. <laughs> but so I have, but I have, I have all six. I have, no, the first, the first show was nine pieces and the second was five. And, um, and I, I do archive them. And the last one that I just did, I'm having a video done of it and I'm actually working on that right now. And, uh, it's really exciting how he's doing that. So I, I do, I do archive that. And I did archive, uh, the two pieces that I did with the cake. I did one piece called Double Take, which was, uh, at the Lebesnik Center. And there was a call out for artists to come up with ideas that what it meant to take a double, to do a double take. What, to look at something twice. And what I did is I appropriated an image from John Bakun, a life photographer who showed Marilyn Monroe behind a camera instead of in front of the camera. I, it was her behind the camera creating and framing instead of being um, looked at as, as the the, the sexual goddess. And so I was thinking I did a double take when I saw that photograph and I thought, wow, she knew exactly what was going on behind that camera. And, uh, and so that also helped the viewer to think of gender in a different way. And the other piece that I did, um, and that was done in South Bend, Indiana. It was called We Are the River, and it was a celebration of the St. Joseph River that runs through South Bend, Indiana, and I did a cake that was round like the sun or the moon, like the gods in Roman times that would like reach back to ancient ritual and the whole idea of what I, it the ceremony of a cake. And it was a celebration for the community to uh, celebrate this life-sustaining force of the St. Joseph River. So I did archive these. Uh, I archived We Are the River. Was that was um, that with Kay West Hughes or? Yeah, that yeah. was with Kay. Yeah, yeah, she's awesome. She is. Yeah, so she's fabulous. awesome. Yeah, she. She she had seen the double take and she asked me if I would do a piece for uh, We Are the River. And I thought of this piece and I took a photograph. This is another way that I use photography in a different way. I took a photograph of the Joseph River, the St. Joseph River, and I put it on the top of the cake. So with the double with a double cake, there was a double layer cake, and with We Are the River, there was a single layer cake. So, so yeah, both both pieces are archived. Well, something I want to ask you, Sadie, is how are you dealing with the pandemic? How's this influencing you? Uh, we've been asking all of our guests that, but uh, uh, what what's what's it doing? And you know, what are you looking forward to after it? Um, 
the pandemic has really um, changed the way that I've been working in a big way, and I've um, I've had to uh, stop and rethink about what it is that I'm doing. I, I was at the beginning of this year. I was working on a series called Illusions of the Eye, and I was uh, doing printmaking at the Art League, and um, when that shut down. Uh, at the beginning, I just started working on the test prints, and uh, I would I would do watercolor on the uh, test prints, and I would reimagine what I was doing. And I'm was very fortunate. I sent them out, and I got into two shows pretty quickly. But the thing that I've been working on that has really um, that has really got me thinking a lot, particularly about the divisions that I felt when I was a small girl and particularly after the riots started here in New York after George Floyd, uh, I, I really started thinking deeply about the divisions that we have, the, the divisions in this country between black and white, between rich and poor, educated and uneducated, South and other, there's so many divisions and this the, all these ideas started reappearing in my mind and I, I just want to go back there's this one piece that I've really been working on since thinking about since 1993 for like 27 years in 1993 at the Whitney Biennial there was a piece done by Daniel Martinez who made a um, it was in a conceptual piece he printed on a museum entrance tab a phrase that said, I can't imagine ever wanting to be white. And when I, when I first experienced this piece, I really admired the piece, admired the piece. This was 27 years ago. I admired the piece because it, it gave people an opportunity to talk about race in America. And at the time, I can remember I was in graduate school and I really wanted to talk about, uh, this artwork and because there, there were so many divisions. But what I remember at that time when I was at the show at the Whitney and it was in a different location is that I remember the silence around people being able to have a conversation. And so I always, I, I have a huge desire to be able to, to respond to this piece and think about how is it that, how do you respond to a piece like this? And when I moved back from Indiana to New York, I, I came down with pneumonia and I can remember in my darkest hour, I was really sick and I thought, if there's ever one piece that I want to do before I die, it's to finish this piece. So, I, I came up with all these phrases that that might would respond to these pieces. They kind of go like this. I can imagine knowing you. I can imagine we want the same thing. I can imagine learning from you. I can imagine mutual respect. I can imagine your heart. I can imagine our dreams. I can imagine our forgiveness, I can imagine our potential.
I can imagine acceptance. I can imagine harmony. This one I really love. I can imagine open minds. And I can imagine a new world. So when the pandemic started, these, these phrases started going across my mind, and I wanted to put them across medical shields and like medicine for the masses. So that's what I'm thinking about now. And that's what I've done. I've done six and out of the six, there's three I like. So I'm really trying to get in there and think about this. Maybe I should photograph them too, but I'm not sure. That's great. Any qu- so, real quick, uh, yeah. any website to contact you at or uh, online? Yeah, yes. I'd love to be contacted. If anyone has any ideas of how to get this idea out into the world, I'm at uh, www.sadiebridger.com. That's S-A-D-I-E-B-R-I-D. G-E-R.com. Well, Sadie, we really appreciate you coming on Art in the Air and sharing all of your art, photography, and even a lot of your personal life. So thank you so much for being on this uh, edition of Art on the Air. Thanks so much. And we'd like to thank our guest today for being on Art in the Air, which is heard every Friday at 11 a.m., rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Your hosts are Larry Breckner and Esther Golden. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President, Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Underwriters for Art in the Air are Valparaiso University's Brower Museum and Walt Brenninger of Paragon Investments. Also, Mary LeVan is our art patron supporter. Art in the Air is supported by the Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, exhibit, please email us at art. On the air, WVLP at gmail.com. That's art on the air, WVLP at gmail.com. See you right here next week, 103.1 FM and 89.1 FM, art on the air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know. I'm Larry, art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther, art on the air our way. Express yourself to art and show the world your heart. Express yourself to art and show the world.